talk to you about today's song. Um, if you're kind of visiting, you haven't been around, what we're doing this summer is we're taking songs that are iconic songs, um, songs, some of them were made before I was born. Uh, hard to believe there was even music before I was born at this point. But some of them are that old, but yet you know the words to them. Um, because just, they just resonate over the decades. And we've been looking at different ones, and we've been looking at the spiritual truths and the spiritual lies in those songs. And so today, we're going to look at, at some point, you have to turn, if you're going to do this, to uh, maybe the, the preeminent rock band of the last quarter century, U2. Any U2 fans out there? I know there's one, Jana, who's uh, surprised she's not lighting a torch in the back somewhere. Um, so... Bono, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bono's. Bono's uh, Bono would, would tell you that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and what I love about this song that we're going to do today is you can hear his heart and his understanding of the gospel in it. Uh, this song was the third song off the 1987 album Joshua Tree. Uh, I lived at 9 Delafield Avenue in New Brunswick, senior year at Rutgers. And this album was playing so incessantly in my roommate's room. Uh, at the, you, know, you just got to the point that you knew everywhere what was coming on next. I mean, this song was just ingrained in my head. So I was spending some time looking at it this week. You guys might know the guitar player uh, in U2. His name goes by The Edge. says he wanted to conjure up, quote, the ultimate U2 live song. So he imagined what it would be like to hear at a future U2 show if he were a fan. After finishing the mix, he felt like he had come up with, quote, the most amazing guitar part and song of his life. But with no one in the house to share the demo with, he recalls dancing around and punching the air in celebration. Now, this is a big time song, okay? If you've seen the music video, it's very cool. If you haven't seen it, the first half of it is like, you two just went up to a liquor store in LA and set up shop on top of the liquor store and just started playing the song and the streets got all crazy in LA and the cops had to come. Really fun video. Um, this song, just like every song we've done so far, never got to number one. You know the highest this song ever got? 13. Um, it's just interesting to me that all these songs that we know that you sing 25 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years later, almost none of them were, were um, commercial blockbusters. Here's, here's what I want you to hear about this song. Bono, when he wrote the lyrics, he'd heard the music and he was writing the lyrics for the song, and he wrote them in response to the notion, this is an Irish rock band, he wrote them in response to a notion that it was possible to identify a person's religion and income based on the street on which they lived in Belfast. Hmm. Interesting. Because one day, Revelation tells us, and the last book in the Bible is Revelation, chapter 5 and chapter 7, it tells us that a day is coming where the streets will not have any names, where every race, color, creed will all bow down, will all together as one worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Bono looked out his window and he saw these streets where, uh, these streets of isolation and, and these streets of, of lack of community, he said, I dream of the day, one day, where the streets will have no name. So I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seats. I ask you to do this because you're supporting the band. Um, you know, that's why I'm asking you to get up. Now, see that guy in there? There's a big drum part in this thing. And see, he's only been doing this for like a couple of months. So he's a little nervous. Are you nervous? <laughs> so that's another reason I got you up out of your seats. Because you are wildly going to support Mr. Adam Godown right there, right? Steve Fisher had a line apparently last week. He said, you guys, John always comes up with these great ideas and then it makes a lot of work for all the rest of us. So thank the band for all the work they put into this. As you sing along, I really want you to, I really do want you to realize that you're singing of, of, of a, a biblical concept. You're singing about a day, a time to come, and it will come where the streets really will have no names. Let's sing.
good are they? Isn't that unbelievable? Joan, Joan leaned over to me at the end. She's like, I cannot believe how good this is. <laughs> that was awesome. One more time, Mr. Adam, go down on the drums. This is uh, this talk. I mean, I had to cut the short talk short in the first um, service. Uh, I feel like I've stumbled onto something that needs so much more time than I have to give it. I'm thinking, well, maybe I could do two or three weeks on this. And I'm like, well, there's another song coming next week, so I really can't do that. Um, so uh, just try to stick with me as we go through this, because there is so much meat in this discussion. There's so much we need to talk more about this, but here we go. Um, uh, anybody been caught up in, uh, it ended maybe uh, two months ago, anybody been caught up in the whole O.J. Simpson uh, thing this summer? Um, anybody watch the, F raise your hand if you watch the FX series on O.J. Um, see, I know you people watched it, you're just not admitting to it. <laughs> but I was just like captured by this, you know, I, I was there and I remember I was watching the NBA game that night and, uh, and uh, the, the, whole, the whole white Bronco thing and I remember, it was just, it was, it, it, this OJ series, I was explaining it to my kids. We were watching it together. It was a lot of fun. And then ESPN came out with this 30 for 30 um, called uh, Made in America, and that was all about OJ. And I watched that, and it, it's just been fascinating for me. It brought back lots of money, but one, or money, brought back lots of memories. Uh, <laughs> why would it brought back money? Um, but here's the one thing that uh, I had forgotten about. It's not surprising that you know a white guy in Mendham forgot about it, but I had forgotten how intertwined race was in the story um, until I looked at it these many years later. Uh, you know, if you if you were old enough um, to remember what was going on at the time uh, in the communities that I lived in, after a year's worth of uh, this trial. I mean, O.J. was guilty. I mean, he was just guilty. And everybody in the community within which I associated was sure that O.J. was guilty. And this whole trial was kind of a fraud, and it would be over. And when it was over, uh, you know, O.J. was going to get his. And uh, I remember, if you remember, they, they, it was like a year trial, and it was like a 20-minute deli del deliberation. And uh, they came back into the room, and uh, they announced when they were going to um, have this verdict come out. And so I was uh, at work in Newark, New Jersey. I worked uh, on Broad Street in Newark for years. Um, and so this was back in the early 90s. So we all gathered, everybody on the fifth floor, which is where I worked, or fourth floor, we all gathered in the conference room. We had a little, I don't remember if we had a TV or just a radio, and we turned it on. It seems so old now like, to think about this, right? Like now everybody would be on their phone watching it. But we all got in the conference room. And you know, if you remember the verdict, the woman, the jury for woman got up and she read it. Uh, we, you know, the jury find the defendant, Ornithal James uh, uh, Simpson, not guilty of murder. And I had no idea, because again, of the community within which I had spent my time, that race was even involved in this case until that verdict got read. And everybody in the room that was African-American cheered and all of the white people looked quizzically at each other. And then all of the African-Americans looked at the white people and wondered, how come you're not happy about this? And all of the white people looked at the African-Americans and said, I can't believe you're happy about this. And it was an awkward moment. Um, and I, I, nobody seemed to see it coming until it was there. And then we all kind of looked at each other and went back to our desks. And in watching this OJ stuff over the last um, couple of months, one of the things that struck me, and I had forgotten about it, is that you can pretty much trace, uh, there, there had been a lot of ra racism within the LA police force, and it had been kind of known for it, but the whole Rodney King thing had boiled this thing up many years before to like a fever pitch. If you remember the story, Rodney King was um, beaten viciously. Uh, on the streets um, by a bunch of, uh, of um, police officers that had gotten out of control and they, they gave him a horrible beating. And um, when they had gone on trial, they were um, found innocent of the beating. And if you remember, that set uh, LA on fire and all kinds of horrible things happened. And they, they took Rodney King, as I recall, I could be wrong about this, but I think he was still bandaged and stuff. And they got him up in front of the, uh, they got him up in front of the, the the TV cameras, and Ronnie King asked a pretty profound question 25 years ago. Anybody remember what his question was? Can't we all just get along? Do you remember he was almost crying? Please, please, 
Can't, can't we just get along? And so here we are 25 years later or so, summer of 2016, and, and, and this summer, maybe like any other summer that I can remember, the answer seems to be really clear. The answer is pretty clear, right? No. We can. I mean, somehow it seems to have eluded us based on the recent events in Baltimore and Baton Rouge and Dallas, and I, mean, I could go on and on. In, in something that's... It was a weird thing that happened in our house a few months ago during one of the, the riots in one of the cities. You know, the news, the news media loves this stuff, right, because it gives them something to put on TV. And uh, they're covering this, I forget which city it was now, that was, you know, set afire. And my family and I are sitting there, and we're literally eating popcorn watching it like it was a docudrama or something. And I remember saying to the kids, this is, this is weird. What's, what's happening? Bono said he dreamt of a day where separation based on income or race or religion, where your identity would no longer be about those things. He dreamt of a day where the streets would have no names. Uh, but I have to tell you, in the summer of 2016, it seems like the streets still have names. And sure, this summer, we've seen lots of, of, of black-white differences. And by no means do I mean to diminish the issues there. But I, I, I think from a spiritual perspective, what we're discussing is even bigger than that. Because there, there's bigger issues afoot here. Issues of separation. Issues of identity. Because it's not just black-white. It's gay and straight. It's Muslim and Christian. It, it's men and women. I mean, we, we do a terrible job of getting along. You know, in the 20th century, just in the last 100 years, there have been more wars and more death due to wars than in every previous century of the human race combined? I mean, excuse the language, we suck at getting along. Which is not good. We see it financially. I mean, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, the economic divide between the haves and have-nots is growing exponentially. There really is a permanent underclass in the society of people that, that, that where we live, whose lives wind up just being, in a sense, throwaways. Streets filled with hopelessness. See, in a town where I live, Long Valley. In the town where I live, when the kids when kids are young, it's it's not long. Hey, Caleb, I'm dropping. Caleb. Please please pray for my son Caleb. At least for Virginia Tech this week. Um, so, don't don't clap for Caleb. Just pray for him. Uh, <laughs> in the town where I live, in Long Valley, I don't know. So at some point, when the kids are fairly young, they start figuring out where they're going to go to college. Because you know that's what kids think about when they're young. But I, I read this week of a. A, man, a person in Chicago. Do you guys know what's going on in Chicago? Murder rates in the nation's large, third largest city are up 72%. Shootings have surged more than 88% in the first three months of 2016. And the author was saying that the game that the kids are playing in the schoolyards is not what kind of bike do you want. It's not like it is in Long Valley. What kind of college are you going to go to? The truth is there are real-life discussions of children saying, what kind of coffin do you want to get put in? They pick out what kind of thing they, coffin they want to be placed in because when their funeral comes, they're not, they're not really sure they're going to, to get to grow up. The horrible truth of the summer of 2016 is that the human race here in the United States and around the world was at a conference this weekend, we were talking about the, 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 the refugee crisis in Syria, and one of the speakers was saying, I just came from literally a pen of, I, I can't remember the number, it was either 60 or 80,000 people that are literally in a holding pen with a fence around them. Here in the U.S. and around the world, we can't seem to get along, and the streets still have a lot of names. Bono sings... We're still building and burning down love, building and burning down love. And it reminded me of a Robert Frost poem that I came across as part of my prep this week. He wrote of, he wrote of building walls. Now, before I go any further, <laughs> this is not a political commentary, okay? Uh, so everybody, keep listening. If you don't check out and go, oh, no, he's talking about Trump. I'm not, we should say it together. He's not talking about Trump, <laughs> right? 
Now, I think that there's probably some truth in here which is applicable to the current situations we hear, but I'm not talking about any political candidate or immigration policy or anything like that, okay? This was the way that Frost put it relative to, to the situation. He said, um, he, he wrote of the walls that we erect to keep people one from another, that we put up ourselves. It starts out with these words, quote, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. The poem was written as if it was by a farmer, and the farmer writes about how for he and the farmer on the neighboring farm, every spring they would go out and check the wall that divided them, the barrier that stood between them. And every spring when they would get out there, they would find that a strange thing had happened. Some stones had fallen down, and the wall had been lowered. And the fence needed to be repaired. And, and Frost writes in the poem that it's as if some force in nature doesn't like the wall being there. It's as if there's some force in nature that is conspiring to tear down the wall. So they keep going out every spring and building back up the wall. He says, we set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, and maybe it's spring, he says. But something inside of me asks, why do we need the wall? And his neighbor says, well, good fences make good neighbors. And Frost says, well, that's true where there's cows, but there are no cows here. He says, before I'd build a wall, this is so good, church. Will you listen to me on this? You should write this down. He says, before I'd build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in and what I was walling out. He says, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And I think we're seeing this right now more than ever before. There is a natural tendency. I'm going to talk about me, okay? I'm not talking about you. I'm just going to talk about me. There is a natural tendency in me. Maybe I'm talking about you. There's a natural tendency in me and maybe in you towards exclusion. At the heart of our inability to get along is how we deal with what might be called otherness in human beings. This is behind, this otherness, what I mean by that is how do I relate to someone of a different language or culture or gender or color or socioeconomic background? It's the problem of otherness because you see, they're not like me. Do you know who I like to hang out with? People like me. Do you know who I like to work with? People like me. Do you know who I like to go to church with? People like me. Do you know who I like to see on my Facebook feed? People like me. We have problems with otherness. Now, in issues of racism, sexism, and class conflict, these are all expre expressions of our inability to love through that. One writer pointed this out because, see, at the end of the day, this is not, hear me, church, this is not just a black-white issue, a, a, a straight gay issue, a man-woman issue, a, a Muslim-Christian issue. One writer pointed this out. He said, he said, take two siblings. He said they come from the same ethnic group, the same gene pool, the same language, the same culture, the same family, the same parents, the same home. All the barriers that we would normally think are, that are the things that are creating the problem. Now, let's do this by a show of hands. How many of you have ever known a home where there are siblings, and despite shared ethnic and cultural heritage, somewhere along the line, they experienced at least one conflict? Would you raise your hands? <laughs> See, there's something bigger going on here. Here's what I would tell you, and I know this to be true. Uh, I would say more than half of us have a sibling that we don't even talk to anymore. Because they don't think like we do. They don't act like we do. The truth is, the ultimate location of this problem that we're having has to do with the fallenness of the human's heart. Because at its core, it's not a black, white, Christian, Muslim, gay, straight thing. It's a me and you thing. This is so brilliant. One writer put it this way. At the core of human sin, he says, is the desire to exclude. At the core of human sin is the desire to exclude. We desire to exclude other people from our lives or from our hearts. We desire to exclude them from God. The truth is, most of the time, we desire to exclude God. We build dividing walls uh, along lines of hostility. At the heart of sin, he said, is exclusion. This is profound. This is the truth, the narrative truth of all of the scripture. 
God is with man. Everything's going right, right? Man falls. What's the first thing he does? Exclude God. God finds man. What's the first thing man does? Blames the woman. Exclude the woman. They reproduce. They have Cain and Abel. What's the first thing that happens? Conclusions about each other? Exclusions. Go to, go, go to the parables. Older brother, younger brother. Jews versus Gentiles. Samaritans versus Israelites. Often what's at the heart of exclusion are false conclusions. Stick with me on this. Maggie, put it up. Here's what I need you to get out of this. To conclude is often to exclude. To conclude is often to exclude. And here's how I'm going to tell you. I, I, I was going to do this, but it's almost... Can I be honest with you? I was a little afraid to do it. Because I think when we feel it in, our, in ourselves, when it touches home, sometimes people, it's too much. But uh, if I was going to put a picture up there of a, a nice, handsome, white kid with a nice polo shirt on, and I said to you, Mendham Hills Community Church, where, tell me about what street he lives on and what he, he's going to be and what he's going to do. You, you would tell me, okay, here's probably where he went to school and here's what he's going to be and here's probably where he's going to live. And then if I put up a, a picture of a black teenager with a hoodie on, you might conclude something different. Because to conclude often means to exclude. And it's not a black-white thing. I could put a Muslim person with a covering on. I could put a, 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 a homosexual person up there. We could pick a million ways to divide. We can pick a million ways of otherness. But we have this habit that's deeply ingrained in us to make conclusions about people and then to form exclusive communities to keep them away. When we conclude that he or she is different, we exclude them from ourselves. Friends, if you read the scriptures with that concept in mind, you will see that it is probably, if it's got to be in the top five issues in humanity. The entirety of the human story is that we are trying to exclude others. And Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he says, this is going to change. Some of you know the story of Jonah. If I went on the streets of Marstown today and I said, hey, tell me about the story of Jonah. What's the story of Jonah about? What would some guy in Marstown tell me the story of Jonah is about? A fish, Right? And, the, and it's a story about a fish and a man, and a, a, a man uh, lived in the fish. And it's amazing. Now, if I, if I come into the church and I say, hey, church, what do you think about the story of Jonah? You know what's going to happen if I ask people in the church about the story of Jonah? A fight starts. You know, what happen, you know what the fight begins about? Okay, if it's a whale. And then the fight gets even deeper, right? Then it gets theological. Well, I think it's an allegorical story. And then someone else will go, no, 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 it's not allegorical. It's historical. And if you blur those lines... And we can get into a big debate about that. And some of those things are worthy debating. But here's the problem. When you get into a debate about that, when you reduce Jonah to the story of a fish, you missed the whole story. You missed the whole story. And Satan celebrates while the church argues over if it's historical or allegorical. Here's, let me share this with you. Um, Jonah's four chapters. You can read it in five minutes. In the first verse of the first chapter, God shows up and he says to Jonah, up on your feet. Jonah must have liked lying around. Get up and go on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them and they're in a bad way and I can't ignore it any longer. And so what does Jonah do? He gets up all right, but he doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes the complete opposite way to a city called Tarshish. Now let me give you a little geography because this is actually quite fascinating. Nineveh wasn't that big of an ask, at least geogra geographically, because Nineveh, Nineveh was only 500 miles away. But Jonah doesn't go towards Nineveh. Jonah heads in the opposite direction towards a city called Tarshish. Do you know how far Tarshish is away from Nineveh? 2,500 miles. And the story of Jonah is, I want to get as far away from the Ninevites as I possibly can. Why? 
Well, because Jonah had made a conclusion about the Ninevites. Because the Ninevites weren't like the Israelites. The Ninevites were bad people. They were idolatrous people. They were proud people. They were a ruthless nation bent on world conquest, and they had long been a threat to Israel. They were the enemies. They did bad things. They didn't worship God. They were sinful people. They're not good. And Jonah's going, I'm not bringing those people a message from God. I'm going to go as far away as I can. Now, now here's this. Here's, can, I, can I ask you to make this personal for you? Because don't read this just as a historical document. Here's the question I have for you. In your life, in your relationships, in your home, at your office, in your job, where is the last place that you want to bring the message of God to? Who is the person? Where is the place where you've been treated poorly? Where they've taken your stuff, broken your heart, crushed your hopes, stolen your promotion, changed your plans. Where, or maybe more importantly, who is the Nineveh that God is saying to you, I'm calling you to bring my message to them. Now see, here's what we do. We'll often go, well, I'm not going to move to Tarshish. That's kind of crazy, and I kind of made me, if I'm a Christian, I remember that fish story. So here's what I'm going to do. Oh, I'll bring them God's message, all right. You don't need to worry about that, John. I'll bring them God's message. I'll let them know just what God thinks. Don't worry about that. I'll tell them how upset he is with them. I'll tell them how, how wrong they are. How, I'll list for them all of their issues. I'll tell them what they've done. Don't worry, John. I got a message for them. And see, once Jonah got spit up out of the whale, that's what he thought he was going to do. He starts going, okay, you want me to bring a message? I'll bring a message to them, all right. We love to bring those messages a couple of years ago, some friends and I were trying to do this ministry. And we decided we were going to try to bring um, the gospel, right? When we talked about the gospel, this story of good news to people where the gospel wouldn't normally go. And so we're trying to find like, places where, you know, where, where, where's the church uncomfortable? Where does the church not usually go? So we found this place in Marstown called the Eric Johnson House, which is a, um, a facility of 10 beds for homeless men with AIDS. This place the church isn't usually going to hang out. And so we literally just started hanging out there. And... Uh, you know, we'd go and cook dinner and, and sometimes play some games at night with the folks that live there. And uh, I got to tell you, this was uncomfortable for me. It was out of my comfort zone. And so uh, one Memorial Day, I think we decided we were going to have a, a picnic, a barbecue picnic. So we rented some stuff and we threw this big picnic for everyone that was there. And they were starting to like, you guys are really a church? Well, yeah, you know. And um, so they started to kind of like us. And the walls started to come down a little and it was some trust. And then the guy says, the guy comes up to me, he goes, this is great. He said, listen, we're having an AIDS awareness march next week. How would you guys like to march in it? I'm like, would you like a hamburger? <laughs> I mean, have you seen AIDS awareness marches? That's what I'm thinking because that's out of my comfort zone. Everything that you believe, I don't believe. And yeah, you want me to, to, you want me to be involved? You want me to, to, to come, and break, come over this wall and, 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 and relate to you? And, you know, God does what he does. See, you're going to hear in a second, God sends these worms into your life that just makes you uncomfortable. And I'm like, yeah, I think we should do this. So I went back to my friends, and they, they all agreed, yeah, let's do it. And so uh, we put on our shirts, and we went to go march in the parade. And uh, as we were marching out, I had my kids, and I'm still not totally comfortable, right? Um, this is still a weird deal for me, and, uh, because I'm telling you, I'm a messed up guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm walking out, and I'm still going, wow, I can't believe I'm marching in the AIDS march. And uh, as we marched out, there was a, a preacher. I'm sure he was a good-natured man. I'm sure he loved God. But he was, he was standing on a, um, a ladder with a bullhorn, and he was yelling down to everybody that walked under it that we were going to hell. And as I walked under it, I remember my kids were little at the time. They looked up at me like, what? Wait, huh? Like, <laughs> because, see, we love to bring that message. I'll tell them. See, this is the story of Jonah. First, he, he has a hard time going. But then when he goes, he takes the message of God to people that he had concluded should be excluded. And here's why. Because he understood something about God. You see, after God got to him with the whole fish thing and scared him straight, Jonah goes to tell him, he goes begrudgingly, but he goes to the Ninevites with a message from God. He predicts to them that if they don't change their ways, God is going to destroy them. It's a tough message, but it was the message that God told him to deliver to them. And much to his dismay and frustration, you know what happens? 
they listened. And they repented. And they changed. And God began to dwell in their lives and in their country and have mercy on them. And here's where we discover the heart of Jonah. Here's where you can see a little bit of the heart of John Eisman. In Jonah chapter 4, last chapter, verses 1 through 3. This change of plans? <laughs> see, I really like the smoting thing, God. They're not like me. They don't think like we do, God. See, God, I'm good. I'm on your side, and they're bad. They're not like us. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord. Didn't I say, but this is something I could see my wife saying to me. Didn't I say before I left home you would do this? And Jonah's going, didn't I knew it? I don't like those people, and I knew, if you, I knew this was going to happen. This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew you were a merciful and compassionate God, that you were going to be slow to get angry, you were going to be filled with unfailing love. I knew you were eager to turn your back from destroying people. Oh, just kill me now. <laughs> this is the scripture. That's why you should never get bored of reading this stuff, because you can't believe it really happened, right? Like, he goes, Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Do you get this? The reason he didn't want to go was not because he did, well, part of it was he didn't like the people, but the other part was that he wanted them punished. They're bad, I'm good. They shouldn't get what I get. And so, gang, let me make this very personal for you. Here's what you need to understand. God is looking for people to bring people to him. Lost people, bad people, far off people, people you don't like, people that look differently than you, people that think differently than you, people that smell differently than you. God is looking to take that person, those people that you and I don't like, the people that we're different from, the people with different languages, the people with different looks, the people that, that I, I'm not comfortable with. This still bothers, this is not easy. But God is looking to find them and bring them home, and his chosen agent is his church. That's you and me. And so God asks Jonah a question. He says, is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry that I love people that you don't like or that, you're, that are different than you? Do you think I just like people that think or look like you? And so Jonah, well, Jonah is a drama queen, right? Jonah, he went out on the east side of the city and he made a shelter to set in under his waited. He waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. I told you this was coming, but God arranged a worm. I'm telling you, church, if you just sit around in your comfort zone and all you want to do is, is share the blessings of God with people who look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you, God arranges a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it withered away, and as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching wind to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat on his head until he grew faint, and here he goes again, wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. And so here comes God on the scene again, and God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And here comes overly dramatic Jonah. He's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yes, even angry enough to die. And hear this, church, hear this. The Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, but you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, it died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? You see, the streets still have names. And a lot of the times, it's because I like who I like, I'm comfortable with who I'm comfortable with, I, I'll bring to God those that I like and those who I'm comfortable with, and I'm not going to worry or really give a rip about those who are different than me. You see, when my kids sit in the cul-de-sac of Two Lookout Place and they talk to their friends about what, what their dreams are for college, do you know why that's a prevalent discussion in Long Valley, New Jersey? Do you know what the graduation rate is at Westmore Central High School? If it's not 100%, it's probably 99%. You live about an hour and a half from Camden High School. Do you know what the graduation rate is at Camden High School? 
it's 46%. Do you care? Do you care? God does. Because God doesn't see black and white. God doesn't see, and it's going to blow your mind, okay? God doesn't see straight and gay and bisexual. He doesn't see Muslim and Hindu. and He, he sees human beings, sons and daughters that he cares about. He cares as much about the kid on the street of Camden as he does of the, as the, kid, the kid on the street of Baghdad, as he does of uh, the kid in that Syrian refugee tent, as he does about my kid walking around Virginia Tech later this week. You realize he loves them just the same. He wants them just the same. Sin brings about conclusions of others which forces exclusion. But here is the story of the scriptures. Despite millennia of exclusion, Jesus shows up at just the right time and changes everything. Maggie, I'm going to skip to the second part of that Galatians verse, 325 to 28. Now that this faith has come, this faith in Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. This was Paul talking about the law. By the way, every time you keep trying really hard, this is why we've been set free from the law of sin and death, because every time you try to keep keeping the law of sin and death, you keep judging other people, you conclude about them that they're not as good as you, and then you exclude them from your circle. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus in the first century. you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. I love to put people in camps, don't you? They're bad people, they're good people. They're smart people, they're dumb people. They're sick people, they're healthy people. Their culture, their actions, their deeds, their lifestyles, their tendencies, they're not like mine, they're bad. God must not like them either because I tend to think God thinks like I think. Shocker alert. See, that's not the story of what God is doing. You know, Peter, Peter who's supposed to, you know, impetuous Peter, Peter and who is going to start the church, right? This rock on who I'm going to build this church. Peter has, Peter is thinking, man, okay, this is great. God has finally come to redeem his people, the Jews. And he starts having these nightmares, what he would call nightmares, that God not only loves Jewish people, but that God also loves Gentiles. And he can't shake this dream. And God tells him to go have fellowship with them and to eat with them and to eat their meat, which had been prohibited by this law. I've been keeping this law. Now you want me to go, if I see me do this, they're going to think that the whole, I can't do that. And God finally prevails upon him and sends him to go meet with this Gentile named Cornelius. Acts 10, 24. Peter and his entourage arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them. He had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter enters the house, Cornelius, I mean, this is Peter, right? Imagine Peter coming to your house. Cornelius falls at his feet and worships him. But Peter pulls him up and says, there's been a new revelation to me. Stand up. I am just a human being just like you. So they talked together and they went inside. There were many others there. And Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me, I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. And watch this. I, 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 I changed the message translation of this last verse because I love the way they put it in the starting verse 34. Peter fairly exploded with the good news. This is how crazy this story is, Peter says. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or, or where you're from. If you want God and you're ready to do as he says, the door is open. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put back together again, well, he's doing it everywhere among everyone. Did you ever think that it was not an accident that Jesus, when he was born, was born into a race that had been long been persecuted and excluded for centuries? It was no accident that he was born into a family not of wealth or of power, but into a poor blue-collar family. Is it, it's no accident that even as an adult, Jesus could say foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's no accident that Jesus was born homeless. It's no accident that many of his closest and most devoted followers, his first witnesses of his resurrection, the most significant leaders of this early church were women. It's no accident that Jesus, it's no accident that the Jesus that you and I claim to follow himself was a refugee. 
He's not comfortable. You see, in Jesus' day, these were shocking things. There were literally rabbinic prayers that went like this. And I'm not making this up, okay? Dear God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Actual prayer. There was a group of rabbis called the Bruised and Bleeding Rabbis. This is true. You can look it up. They had made a vow that they would never look on a woman. So if a figure came even to the peripheral of their vision that appeared that it might be a woman, they'd close their eyes and not open them again until they were convinced that she would have had time to pass out of their frame of vision. And they were forever then bumping into things, walls and buildings and so on. And so they were called, right? They're called Bruised and Bleeding Rabbis. It's a true story. This stuff is deep. Now, we still live in a society where women are judged and valued uh, according to the way they, they look. They did a recent study on a college, male college students who were asked to decide on a criminal sentence for women who were convicted of identical crimes, and they were shown the pictures of the women, and they gave the less attractive women 50% more jail time than the attractive women. That's funny if it weren't true, and as we all know, we can overlay that on all kinds of other other socioeconomic and racial issues. It's no accident the kind of people who were excluded in Jesus' day were the kind of people Jesus embraced. Let's go back to that quote. You see, there really is something that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And whenever human beings genuinely discover Jesus, this solidarity movement that he's building, this wall-tearing movement goes on, and it's his church that should be leading it. I'm going to close with a story I read this week about a man called Clarence Jordan. His name was Clarence Jordan. Back in the 50s, he went to preach at a small church in the back hills of South Carolina. In the 50s in South Carolina, segregation was a really big deal, commonly practiced. And when he got behind the pulpit in this small little South Carolina church, he looked over the crowd, and much to his surprise, the congregation was made up of both blacks and whites. And he couldn't believe his eyes. He wondered how this could happen. So after the service, he went to the old hillbilly preacher who was the pastor of the church. And I'm going to try to do my best hillbilly imitation here. So Clarence Jordan said to him, how did you get this way? And the old hillbilly preacher said, what way? And Clarence said, you know, I mean, you integrated blacks and whites together. I mean, did this come about because of the Supreme Court decision on integration? And the old preacher said, Supreme Court? What's the Supreme Court got to do with Christians? Are you saying, you're like, look, you know, we don't, we're not interested in that. Come on, Clarence said, you know, you got a weird church. I mean, how'd you get it to be this way? Well, the preacher said, I used to have about 20 members in this church when the last preacher died. But there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people here right now. Well, how did it happen? Well, when the old preacher died, they couldn't get a new preacher know how. So about two months in, I told them, I told the deacons I'd be the new preacher. Since they didn't have anybody else, they let me preach. As I read this, I kind of thought it sounded like me. <laughs> Not a real elaborate search process. He stood up. So he goes on, he goes, I got there the next Sunday. I opened the Bible, I put my finger down and landed on that verse that says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So I preached on that, the old preacher said. I told him how Jesus makes all things new, how, how all kinds of people won. When I finished, the deacons told me they wanted to talk to me in the back room. When the deacons told me, they, when we got there, they told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preaching no more. So Clarence asked, well, what'd you do to them? The old hillbilly said, I fired them deacons. <laughs> I mean, if a deacon's not going to deke, he's got to be fired. Well, Clarence was amazed. How come the deacons didn't fire you? They never hired me, said the preacher. <laughs> you know, once I found out what bothered them, people, I gave it to them week after week. I put the knife in the same place Sunday after Sunday. Clarence said, did they put up with it? Not really, preacher answered. I preached that church down to four people. <laughs> he said, sometimes new life's got to begin Sometimes new life begins not when we get a lot of new people into the church, but when we get the, some of the old people out of the church. If people are going to start standing in the way of the moving of God, they better be gone. And he said after that, and I'm going to stop because my throat hurts. 
He said after that, our goal as Christians was to produce Christians. And Clarence said, well, how can you tell when you've produced a Christian? Well, said the old preacher, down here, we've been taught since we were knee-high to a grasshopper that the difference between black folk and white folk, there's a difference and that they shouldn't mix. But we know when people get saved, all that garbage is gone. We know we've got Christians on our hands when all that evil stuff about race is taken out of folks' hearts. Well, when we got some Christians, this church has started to grow and grow, and that's how we got to where we are today. Because as Frost said, there is something out there that doesn't want a wall, that wants it down, and that something is Jesus Christ. Ben, come on up. Church, let me ask you a question, very personal question. Who have you made conclusions about? Who have, you made you, who have you made conclusions about? They're not good enough. They're not right enough. They're not white enough. They're not black enough. They're not Christian enough. Who have you made conclusions about in your family, with your kids, in your home, in your workplace? Whom have you made conclusions about? And because you have concluded, you have excluded. I have a good friend of mine. He's an African-American guy. Lives here in town. Successful guy. Drives a nice car. And one day through tears, he told me, I live in this town. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten pulled over in this town for driving a nice car through here. That breaks my heart. Read a story this week about when the civil rights movement was starting in the South and they were just starting to integrate this one school. And a mom had to send her, her little white daughter off to this school that was going to be integrated and the mom was very nervous about it, didn't know how it was going to turn out, knew there was going to be all the soldiers there that day and all the rest. And, and the mom when, waited for, for her daughter to come home from school that day and met her at the door and said, honey, how did everything go? And the daughter said, mom, you know what? They sat a little black girl next to me. And her mom knew that this was going to be a new experience for her, wasn't sure how to respond, how big a deal to make of it. So she said, well, honey, what happened? And her daughter said, oh, mommy, we were both so scared that we held hands all day. What have you concluded? Who have you excluded? And so, Lord, speak the deep truths of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is neither Greek nor Jew, nor black nor white, nor slave nor free, nor gay nor straight, nor Muslim nor Hindi. They are sons and daughters of the Most High God that you want found. Help us to have your eyes to see and your heart to care. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and close this song.